Come on in to Margaret McSweeney's Kitchen for Kitchen Chat, where every week you'll meet chefs, cookbook authors, foodies, gourmets, and just plain people who love to eat. And along with laughter, chat, recipes, and stories about food, you'll sometimes also hear words of inspiration, love, and hope. As Margaret always says, Kitchen Chat is food for the senses and food for the soul. So grab a cup of coffee, put your feet up on a comfy chair, and get ready to spend a little time with Margaret and her friends. Hello, dear foodie friends, and welcome to Kitchen Chat. This is your host, Margaret McSweeney, and I'm so glad you're joining me in my Chicagoland kitchen today. And I can't wait for you to meet two amazing people who happen to be friends as well, uh, Karen Page and her husband, Andrew Dornenberg, who have just released an amazing book that will change your life in and outside of the kitchen. It's called Kitchen Creativity. Welcome to Kitchen Chat, Karen and Andrew. Oh, thanks you so much. We're so happy to be here with you. Great to be here. Oh, well, I, well, by way of background for the foodie friends who have been following me on this culinary journey with Kitchen Chat, it was such a delight to meet both of you. I guess it was two years ago when our dear mutual friend, Barbara Lazaroff, uh, was, her. <laughs> yes, was in Chicago. We were all celebrating James Beard Awards and we met for dinner in Chicago. And it, it was so much fun to hear about your culinary journey. So before we jump into the book and all the amazing lessons, could you share with us a bit about how you started this amazing journey, and you have an award-winning, several award-winning books, but the Flavor Bible was the most recent one. Um, how did the two of you meet and become a culinary couple, the dynamic duo in the culinary world? <laughs> That's a loaded question. I, I don't know if I can think back that far because Andrew and I met when we were teenagers. No, just, um, just kidding. It feels like that way when you think back that far. We've been married 27 years as of this year, so um, the relationship goes back uh, quite a ways. But when we met, I was living in New York City, and Andrew had just moved to Boston from the San Francisco Bay Area. And it was on Andrew's very first visit to New York, which was very auspicious, uh, that we ended up meeting um, basically through a mutual friend. And um, let's see, we should we give the PG version? We'll give the PG <laughs> yeah, version. The PG version. <laughs> I ended up with uh, a boyfriend in Boston, and we ended up seeing each other every few weeks, and we're trying to figure out, okay, um, am I moving to Boston? Or are you moving to New York? And so uh, we got to, I, I ended up moving up to Boston for graduate school. And it was a great time to be in Boston. I think it was fortuitous that I ended up at Harvard because the Boston food scene was thriving at the late 80s. It was probably, I, I would say, one of the um, hottest meccas of creativity. You had Jasper White doing some of the best seafood in America at that point, and Lydia Shire at um, Viva. Well, she was just opening Biba. Oh, I think correct. it opened yeah. in 1989, 1990. Oh, so, yeah. And so when we got married at Biba in 1990, it was really probably one of the, the hottest restaurants in America at that point. And I still long for the, that food um, that she was doing there. She was doing fusion before there was a name for it. She was mm -hmm. doing eclectic food before there was a name for it. And so um, Andrew uh, was working in the restaurant business in Boston. Um, and uh, he was trying to figure out as a, as a young aspiring chef if he should go to culinary school or not. And I said, well, you should do what I do and my fellow MBAs do. We go to the bookstore when we want to 
fight, figure out how to write a resume or how to have a job interview and just buy a book on becoming a chef. And he said, well, there aren't any. And I said, well, that's ridiculous. Everybody's starting to want to become a chef. There should be a book on that. And we found out that there wasn't. We did our research. We went to the Boston Public Library. Um, we looked at the U.S. Occupational Outlook Handbook and saw that the chef's profession was one of the top 10 fastest growing professions in the United States for the foreseeable future. And we thought, well, somebody should write a book on becoming a chef. Why don't we give it a go? And that's exactly what we did. Our first book was called Becoming a Chef. It came out in 1995. Um, got all of An Andrew's questions answered about whether he should go to cooking school, how he should pursue a career path as a chef. But what we did, never realized it would do was to really launch our careers as culinary authors. And you know, book number one led to book number two, culinary artistry, which led to book number three, Dining Out, where we spend a year eating out with restaurant critics all across the country and talking to them about the critical process. And essentially, our uh, career has been one of unfolding. We There's a uh, subject matter that we want to learn more about. And it's like, okay, what's an interesting book that we could do on this topic where we can actually get paid to learn about this topic and then to teach it? Um, we learn from the very best interviewing, whether it's the best chefs, the best cookbook authors, the best restaurant critics, the best sommeliers, and then share what we learn um, with the profession. And that's one of the things that I think has attracted us both and lead to our deep uh, respect and admiration for this profession is that it is a profession all about giving back where um, I think it goes back to Fernand Poin, the great French uh, three-star chef who said that um, it is a duty of every good cuisinaire to share with the next generation that which he has learned. And I think that's something that every good culinarian still takes to heart to, in terms of mentoring, in terms of teaching and helping the next generation. I think both of professional culinarians and of gastronomes, appreciators of good food and good wine uh, and the good life at the table, that's something that people still take to heart. Absolutely. And here on Kitchen Chat, we have a saying that charity begins in the kitchen. And it's just been on my own culinary journey, been amazing to see how charitable this industry is, the chefs give back, the cookbook authors, and, and both in terms of donating to great causes, as well as reaching out and mentoring the next generation. And this book, Kitchen Creativity, which um, you and Andrew have compiled and written and, and, and documented with incredible photographs. And, and Andrew, I can't wait to hear about that as well. You really have compiled such an amazing, uh, just amazing information for a chef of any age or stage, even if you're a novice home chef or a professionally trained chef, this book, Kitchen Creativity, will really speak to you and, and just change your outlook in the kitchen. And what was so striking is in your preface, talking about why creativity matters, I, I loved that you provided this insight. Creativity was cited by 60% of CEOs polled as the single most important leadership quality for success in business. So it not only applies to in the kitchen, but also outside of the kitchen. And when you begin with this incredible quote about um, the artist who was saying that you learn the master, you learn from the master's 
and then you create your own. I forgot what that exact quote was. It was so impactful. <laughs> no, exactly. I think that principle applies in so many different fields. And it was um, hard at first to get our arms around what's the way to structure this material that's most useful. Because the thing about creativity is that it's all important. Given the statistics that you just cited, it's the most important trait for success in business, according to leading CEOs. And yet only one in four Americans believe that they're at their creative potential. So everybody's looking to become more creative for all kinds of personal and professional reasons. And yet it's this amorphous process where um, it doesn't work linearly. It's much more of a lateral process. It's much more of a cyclical process where you start by being inspired and you move in one direction and then you might take a few steps back and then a leap forward. And creativity works in its own mysterious ways. And yet we wanted to try to um, lay it out as clearly as possible possible for people who were looking to become more creative uh, through food. And that's why we came up with the three-stage process that it seemed like all of the great chefs had gone through. And stage one is really mastery, where it's important before you start to create and start to get innovative, you need to know what you're innovating from, what is your base. And so we talk about what are the basics that anyone who wants to consider themselves a good cook, whether that's in a professional kitchen or just at home, what are the basics that you need to master? And so there's a reading list of the 20 books that are most recommended by leading chefs that any cook should master, should read. Um, and so there's a basic literacy that you have to go through. There are basic ingredients to be familiar with, basic techniques to be familiar with, and then most importantly, seasoning, how to learn to season like the great chefs. And so when, once you understand and absorb some of this philosophy you, and you really understand classic dishes, um, you know, a lot of young cooks, they don't want to work from recipes. They want to be innovating. And I think that is a wonderful trait and uh, instinct to want to be more creative and innovative because that's what moves the world forward. But I think you need to understand a lot and there's probably a lot more that you can understand through the classic dishes. You know, we unpack dishes like, you know, something as simple as um, Eggs Benedict where if you make Eggs Benedict from scratch, it's not just making one dish. You're learning how to make English muffins from scratch. You're learning how to cook eggs. You're learning how to make a sauce. And if you add all of that up together, those are all things that will help you to um, become a better cook and, you know, whether it's the baking of the English muffins or the sauce making that you can use to make a sauce for pasta or you can make a sauce for um, anything else. And um, it's really kind of breaking things down into their basic elements, understanding the dynamics through which that all comes together, and then being able to add your own twist to the classics, um, which is a, the chapter that we call alchemy, which is stage two, where you're learning to kind of adjust and move things forward before you go into stage three, which is creativity, which is really starting from scratch, coming up with something from nothing, uh, whether it's a dish, whether it's a dessert, whether it's a drink or an entire new restaurant concept. Absolutely. I found that quote and I wanted to, to read this to the mm. listeners mm -hmm. because it is profound. It says, even an artist as creative as Picasso said, learn the rules like a professional so you can break them like an artist. And in a way, what this book's premise is in terms of kitchen creativity, it's creating disruptors in a way within the culinary world. 
Absolutely. And yes. because the dis- destruction is part of creati- mm-hmm. creation, yes. um, that they go hand in hand. I think that was the big aha for me in terms of our research of the creative process over the last four years is realizing, you know, it's not just building, building, building in order to have the new, the old needs to be destroyed. So every act of creation is an act of destruction. If you're taking a classic dish like a Caesar salad and you're taking out the anchovies and you're substituting it with capers or making whatever change it is, that is an act of disruption. And um, I, I think it's it's part of the secret of creativity is, is coming to embrace that and knowing what things are essential. You know, can you have a Caesar salad without anchovies? Can you have a Caesar salad without romaine? Can you have a Caesar salad without Parmesan cheese? You know, what are the elements? And so when you break things down to their elements and understand, okay, this, it, it won't be a Caesar salad without a romaine, you know, or it won't be a Caesar salad unless it's uh, solid. You know, what happens when chefs try to make a Caesar salad soup or a Caesar salad cocktail? And believe me, these things have been done um, to <laughs> varying degrees of success. But yes, we've tasted versions that have knocked our socks off. So it's so interesting when you, uh, as we did, when you talk to some of the world's most creative chefs and you get inside their heads and you understand how they're thinking about things, um, whether it's tweaking them, whether it's breaking them down into elements and figuring out what can you substitute oh, this this Parmesan cheese is adding richness. What else could I add uh, use to add richness? What about miso? What about some other ingredient? And you can start playing with them as building blocks. And really the secret of creativity is what Einstein talked about, the secret of combinatory play, taking different um, elements that already exist and combining them and connecting them in, in whole new ways. And that is what this book is all about. And I love it. And it is just explained in great detail and with such great illustrations, not only with word pictures, but with actual pictures by Andrew and, and kind of on the same artistic element discussion. The front cover, Andrew, I love it. It is a fork and it almost, it's a spiral design, which reminds me so much of Calder. The artist. Oh, well said. Actually, it's been funny because that photo has been sort of a Rorschach test for everybody. Wow. Um, when we started showing the cover, like one person would think it's caramel. Uh, when I first saw it um, coming through on the computer, I actually thought it was Parmesan cheese. So it's, I think also it sort of says, are you a sweet person, a savory person? Or like you yourself, you're bringing in architecture to it. I think that's fascinating. And I think the cover has been a lot of fun that way. Yes, and your photos of capturing this culinary journey. I, I especially loved the, the photographs, Andrew and Karen, where you were in the libraries, let's just call it the libraries of some fabulous mm-hmm. chefs. And um, they were like pointing out the books and so many of them have huge collections. What was the most memorable um, chef's library <laughs> that you visited? Oh, there's so many. We yeah. spent time interviewing Eric Repair at Le Bernardin in New York City, which is on the list of the world's 50 best restaurants. And he actually has a library of over a thousand different volumes. Right. And he requires each cook in his kitchen to take a look at every single one <laughs> during wow. their tenure in the kitchen. So <laughs> you've got to pick it up. You've got to be familiar with it. These are his babies. Mm-hmm. And he wants his entire team to draw from those same set of inspirations that he keeps around him in the library. And so it's really the 
creative zone for Le Burner Down, where they come up with their new dish ideas, their new menu ideas. And um, I think it's a wonderful touchstone. He actually has um, a first edition copy of um, Ali Bob, which is this treasured book that a lot of the great French chefs that we've interviewed from Jean-Georges Van Grichten of Jean-Georges to um, the late uh, Michel Richard of uh, Citronelle, they love this book. And he's it's so beloved to him that he's got this copy, although he admitted that he doesn't keep it in the library for his <laughs> cooks to get their hands on. Um, he keeps that one at home. Aww. We had a, a great quote by Barbara Lynch, who she said that uh, cookbooks were my mentor. Aww. And I think that is such a perfect thing. And I think that quote is next to uh, Jose Andres' Think Food Group library in their offices. So I think that says also a lot that here you are right in the middle. You have one of the most creative people you know, we know, Jose Andres and his team, and they have a full library right there to grab and pull off. So I think it says so much about, you know, the resources that are at hand for, for anybody, not just a professional chef. Yes, and you captured that photo. I loved that, Andrew, uh, in Chef Andres' library of cookbooks. Mm-hmm. And, and that's just fantastic because a picture can tell a thousand words. So it's just a, a perfect compilation and, and, um, with photos and the words. Um, and let's go back in terms of being, um, and I love that it's so, pre- so profound that creativity is at its essence, destruction. Uh, and th- that, that whole idea and concept really is profound. And even if we take it to the home chef level by getting up the courage to change, you know, that secret recipe that was handed down from grandma, great grandma, in terms of even changing an element of that. Exactly. And I think a lot of chefs are nervous about that. I mean, even home cooks are nervous about that because I don't know if you saw the article uh, came out about a month or so ago, but it was a national story that hit a lot of headlines of newspapers and television reports that 90% of Americans do not like to cook. And it's costing them thousands of dollars every year because they're spending more money on packages to cook at home, like Blue Apron, or they're buying um, a lot more takeout. And it's so sad because there is so much sensual pleasure in cooking. And I think that the way that we've evolved, um, on one hand, you're seeing a greater foodie culture than ever. You're seeing more television programming devoted to food shows, but we tend to look at them um as voyeurs rather than as using them as lessons to help inspire our, our cooking. I think in some ways it's almost um, a reverse. This, this same article that also appeared in the Harvard Business Review um, had shared that 15 years ago, the statistics were 15% of Americans like to cook, and now it's down to 10%. So it's fallen by half, which is significant. And, it's, and the trend is that it's falling even more. And I think one of our hopes for kitchen creativity is to for it to be exactly the kind of book that will get people more excited about cooking, about realizing that you can be creative in the kitchen. You don't have to use, if your recipe that you're trying to follow calls for an eighth of a teaspoon of something, you don't have to throw the whole recipe away if you don't have tarragon. There are other things you can substitute for that. And I think as as home cooks and chefs get more comfortable with substituting ingredients, which with thinking about the basic concepts underlying a recipe, oh, I need an ingredient that's going to add acidity. I don't have vinegar 
creamer in hand, maybe I'll use lemon juice mm-hmm. or vice versa. Once they get more comfortable really being more improvisational in the kitchen, I think that's what brings the fun back. And the creativity is what makes the fun back. And so I really do think that Kitchen Creativity is one of those books that's going to help people really fall back in love with cooking again. And I think what's important to remember is you, you don't have to take on something that's gigantic and hard. I think we have in the A to Z section for inspiration, if you look at pesto, like, well, what is pesto? It's, you know, basil, garlic, and Parmesan cheese and olive oil. Well, you can substitute beet greens and put them with garlic, olive oil, and cheese, and maybe a pistachio, or you can do mint and parsley and garlic. So it's like, don't don't think you have to reinvent the, the hardest thing you've ever eaten. Think it's something that's really kind of easy and fun and that you love. Like, I love pesto. And again, you can throw it into so many things. So if you can just do a riff on your own pesto with some new ingredient, a different green, you know, we're going into wintertime now, so it can be kale season and collards and things like that. And then think about what makes pesto great to you, your version. Um, I love a lot of Parmesan and cheese, and I like to toast my pine nuts to get a little more uh, umami. You know, it, it can be like that simple and that fun. And that's all we're talking about is a Cuisinart and some veggies and, and pulsing. Yes. And at the bottom line, and I think you address this so well, and I loved your reference to music. Uh, it's about discovering our palate. And this book is such a great guideline to, for that as well. And, and I love your description because, because my wonderful father was a lyric tenor and, um, I host kitchen chat as a way to honor his memory. And I love how you write, in music, there's such a thing as perfect pitch, or you can simply use a pitch pipe to tune your own instrument to the same (laughs) musical scale as every other musician. However, in food, we haven't yet invented a flavor pipe to be able to tune (laughs) our own dishes to perfection. This is brilliant. Can you... Share with us a bit about this flavor pipe and and your concept in terms of really helping to provide, um, you know, pitches that we can <laughs> understand. Yeah, you know, I think that um, it's interesting. I had lunch today with Bianca Bosker, who wrote a New York Times bestselling book on wine, and we're doing an event um, soon. And I, um, we were just kind of lamenting the fact that in the United States there aren't palate classes. You know, if you're interested in developing your palate, you take a wine class. If you're interested in developing your nose, you take a perfume class. But in terms of developing your palate as a foodie, um, to understand certain benchmarks for what ingredients should taste like or what dishes should taste like, there really aren't classes uh, per se on that. And so cooking classes, I think, are are the next uh, closest thing um, where you can learn about how to to prepare a dish and how to season it, and you'll learn step by step. But I, I think that there is an opportunity for a palate class. Andrew, maybe that's that's an idea that we yes. need to talk about. <laughs> yeah, I'm still um, on a book. <laughs> <laughs> but I think that in terms of a pitch pipe for flavor, you know, we're both idealists. That's why we write the mm-hmm. books that we do, that we think that people can develop their ability to taste and to adjust. And, every, and I think the more people learn what their palates are like, um, and of course, palates change just like tastes change mm-hmm. in other, in music, in fashion, um, the times change, you know, there's a whole host of reasons that things change. But if you develop a sense of what you like in food, you can learn to make food that is more to your taste and will bring you even more pleasure. And that's what 
we think food is or should always be about. And so I think it's a matter of really coming to understand what we call the flavor equation, which is the basis of our book, um, The Flavor Bible, and which we revisit in Kitchen Creativity to even uh, more depth and detail. But it's understanding that, you know, a lot of people use the words flavor and taste interchangeably when in fact they're very different concepts. And flavor is a more overarching concept that encompasses taste, um, which is basically what's happening on your tongue, but it also encompasses aroma, which is what's happening on essentially your nose, but it really also takes place in the inner uh, change between your nose and uh, the back of your throat. And it also has to do with the sense of touch, texture, temperature. You know, we feel those differences in, uh, say, a gazpacho versus a hot tomato soup. Or if you've got a potato, if you've got mashed potatoes, you've got crispy French fries, that's a completely different experience. And so all of these things, in addition to appearance, because we know we eat with our eyes, um, a dish that looks, you know, if you if you get served uh, mashed potatoes that have been combined with green food coloring, you're going to, your mind's going to believe you're tasting some uh, parsley in there um, versus something that's that's not colored. So we, we also, um, you know, when we hear that crunch, the more that crunch is amplified, we tend to associate that with, you know, greater levels of crispiness and crunchiness. And so there's all kinds of interesting research that's being done on those topics. But um, I think the more deeply you understand flavor equation, and a big part of the flavor equation for us is also what we call the X factor, which is every other factor outside of the five physical, physical outer, what we call outer senses, the taste, smell, touch, etc. Um, that also comes into it. You know, if you are allergic to strawberries and you get served a strawberry tart, that you're going to have a very different experience of that than someone who isn't. If your mother made a particular dish uh, of meatballs, say, and you get served meatballs, it will be compared to that benchmark. And Mm -hmm. if you've got one that tastes like your mother's, that might bring back um, a wonderful memory for you. So it's so interesting to be aware of all these different aspects of flavor because then you can, as the creator of a dish or creator of a restaurant concept or the creator of a menu, you can bring all of these elements into play. And so we go into them in great detail in terms of the who, what, when, where, why, and how of developing a dish, thinking about all aspects of how how it all comes together. And the more you think about it, the more um, intensely you examine it, the more flavor you can add and the more pleasure you can add to a dish and the more successful you'll be. Yes. And what was also uh, such an incredible lesson to me in reading this book, Karen, the two things you that jumped out about seasoning, where you write, seasoning makes an ingredient taste like more of itself. I, I never really thought of it. I thought we're kind of seasoning to hide a flavor, not necessarily to make it taste like more of itself. Mm. In, in Kitchen Creativity, we do talk about the difference between enhancing flavor and adding flavor, which are very different things. Enhancing flavor, you're sort of, again, making it, making an ingredient, you know, tuning it, as we talked about before, yes. as you brought up the beautifully. You know, you're trying to make a carrot taste more like a carrot. And there are certain things that you can add to to do just that. If you're cooking pumpkin uh, and you add bay leaf, that will make the pumpkin taste more pumpkin-y versus if you take something completely different, say uh, Parmesan cheese, and you add that to your pumpkin soup, that's going to be adding a flavor and adding richness. 
So different ingredients have different functions, and sometimes you can use the same ingredient in different ways. For example, if you add, um, say, cayenne pepper to a dish, if you do it in a large enough quantity, that is adding a flavor. But if you're just looking to enhance flavor, if you add cayenne pepper in a small enough quantity, what that tends to do is turbocharge the flavors that are already in the dish, and that is a way of just enhancing the flavor. But again, these are very fine distinctions that not everybody takes the time to make, um, but the more you can really, you, know, you can serve as the conductor of the orchestra, let's say, going back to the <laughs> tuning analogy, um, if you can learn to think about how you're using the ingredients, why you're using them that way, and just being that much more adept in your use of them. Yes. Well, right now, my kitchen is a bit of a cacophony with a lot of dissonance. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm trying. I am trying. And this book is just such a wonderful and an essential uh, reference for any and every cook, um, whatever the level. And it, it's just so compelling how you break it down and explain in details, give examples and share what the, the wise words from the chefs are around the world. And what really was fascinating, too, is when you write, as you develop as a creative cook, the world will continue to change, people will change, you will change, pay attention to these changes, and you'll find new sources of inspiration. The world of edibles will change, the world of eaters will change, the world of cooks will change. And, but you really provide, I guess, adapters for us in terms of how to recognize because it's so true. uh, And I cannot remember who quoted this in here, but it was so meaningful too, where, uh, you know, today's chefs become uh, traditions in the future. And so do you see any, I guess, ways of cooking that will soon be traditional? and not be deemed new. Well, it's so funny because the Cronut has come out a few years ago already, and um, the lines are so long that not everybody's tasted an actual Cronut, but the concept's been around for a while. And so people are still playing around with the idea, okay, if I'm going to cross two different pastries, like a croissant and a donut, um, what else could I choose? How about a croissant and a pretzel? How about a, you know, on and on. So people are... um, I think the whole idea of crossing different uh, pastries uh, is is an idea that, you know, it's been tried and now other people are playing with it and soon that will play itself out. And, you know... I think it will continue to unfold ad infinitum. Uh, maybe they'll start doing triples. What about a croissant and a donut and a pretzel? And what will that be like? And what will that sound like? What cute name are you going to give to it? Um, but I think that that's really what we're here to do uh, on this on this earth in this lifetime is here to play with food. And that is really, I think, one of the secrets of some of the greatest chefs is that they have so much fun with it. And not every experiment is successful, of course, but yet the there are no failures because you will always learn, as Thomas Edison did, one more way not to invent the light bulb, and it brings <laughs> you that much closer to the actual light bulb. But um, you know, 
I think that it's just the nature of food that once we cr- we come up with something new, whether it's you know fusion crossing two different uh, cuisines, uh, a lot of was done with um, say uh, French and Vietnamese, for example. Maybe someone will come up with a, a different fusion that's not been tried before, and uh, if it's successful, that will inspire other people's efforts. But I think it, I, I think those creative efforts really um, th- the inspiration is constant. That's where the spiral on the cover of Kitchen Creativity comes from is that it starts and it keeps unfolding and unfolding and unfolding as we keep trying new things and keep moving forward in new directions. And I think it's interesting to use the word tradition. I'm glad you said that word because what I thought of when you mentioned that comment was Michael Voltaggio, who is this incredibly, incredibly creative chef out in Los Angeles. But he says, I have like multiple pressure cookers always working at the same time in my kitchen. And, you know, he said, I think that's like four or six all the time. It's just so funny that, again, everyone thinks, well, I should do sous vide or I should try this new technique. And here's one of the the leading chefs, you know, in in America and certainly Los Angeles using pressure cookers. So sometimes, you know, an idea is like literally in your cupboard just waiting to be used. Oh, I just love that. And and I'm curious, collectively, how many restaurants have you dined in? Oh, who can keep track? <laughs> that, that won't serve me. <laughs> uh, fortunately, we've been, I've been very fortunate with Karen to dine in some of the greatest you know restaurants and not so greatest restaurants, but at least we're always together doing it. So that's the, the plus. Wow. I I just can only imagine how many meals you've enjoyed. Is there any particular meal that stood out with all of your restaurant dining experiences? Well, I think what stands out for me are the restaurants that literally make me cry, mm-hmm. um, where I, uh, it just brings tears to my eyes. And two that come to mind in that category are the Inn at Little Washington, which is in Washington, Virginia. It's about um, an hour, 15 minutes outside of Washington, D.C. And Patrick O'Connell, I think, is one of the most amazingly talented, creative, fun-loving chefs I have ever encountered. He is featured in Kitchen Creativity's pages. In fact, his quote uh, kicks off the beginning of the creativity chapter, um, and that was based on a menu that he served to us when we were in at dinner and on the cover of the menu it says with every meal a cook is given a blank canvas and another chance to create a masterpiece mm-hmm. and I think that's really the spirit of the book Kitchen Creativity and really kicks off the creativity chapter in that um, you know it's you, uh, there's a saying in the, in the restaurant world that a chef is only as good as the last uh, plate of food they serve mm-hmm. and so there's always a chance to that the next dish is going to be a masterpiece of the next one and it was so delightful to talk to chefs about that experience, about how they, you know, encourage those next masterpieces. And a lot of chefs will even challenge their teams to come up with a new dish, whether it's once a week, once a month, they'll have a competition, a good natured competition. It's really more of a team building exercise as a way to spur their ideas and to really encourage um, them to work with one another to come up with new, new ideas that will hopefully end up on the actual restaurant menu. So it's a real credit to the chef uh, to be able to draw on the ideas of his or her team, um, but also a real way for young cooks to develop because menu writing and dish development is something that's typically done by executive chefs and higher traditionally, at least when Andrew came up in the mm-hmm. restaurant business. And so for, you know, sous chefs and 
line cooks and uh, assistant pastry chefs to be able to be part of that development process is pretty extraordinary. Um, but other um, meals, the epitome meals, I think of the point in Saranac Lake uh, where it's just, you know, not just about the food, but the creativity with which they serve that food. You know, for example, putting on full-fledged picnics in the middle of winter and bringing out the heat, space heaters. And um, it's just an extraordinary experience to have that. And I think that that's, again, part of what to think about when it comes to create, you know, how can you serve a, a dish or a meal in a creative environment that will make it an unforgettable experience? It doesn't have to be about an unusual ingredient, although it can be. It doesn't have to be about an obscure technique, although it can be. Sometimes it's just, you know, the beauty of having a picnic indoors or having a barbecue outside in the middle of winter um, is enough to just really make it um, unforgettable. Oh, this is wonderful. And then also, and Andrew, you were referring to it earlier, how there's almost like an, an index, or as you call it, part two, a world of infinite culinary possibilities, the list A to Z. And one thing that really just connected with me and resonated with me was under the T section and where you talk about time, Karen, as being an ingredient Mm. Mm-hmm. Which is something that a lot of chefs, I think, are coming to realize that sometimes there's the beauty of a ingredient being used, you know, a dish being made a la minute, you know, right at the last minute, and the freshness is part of the delight of it. Otherwise, you need time for different dishes to meld. I think Dominique Ansel gives the example of his uh, macarons, which he thinks should be served the next day because you should, over, overnight, you should refrigerate them in order for the flavors and the textures uh, to really, you know, get a moist moisture and to meld together. Um, but there are chefs like Joshua Skeens at Cezanne Restaurant in San Francisco, which was one of those other knock your socks off experiences that we had just this year where, um, you know, this guy is thinking completely out of the box in a, in a whole new way and reinventing a language, including thinking about time as an ingredient. And his goal, as crazy as he is, to tr- is to try to get that uh, length of time from either the ground uh, ground to the plate or from the ocean to the plate down to zero. And so he's working on all kinds of new restaurant concepts to, and he has a fish tank, of course, in his restaurant in San Francisco <laughs> that takes those live creatures and gets them to the plate in a matter of very, very few minutes and wow. to, to extraordinary effect. So um, he's definitely one to keep an eye on. Wonderful. Well, we've had a lot of social media questions come in. One from Beth Engelman, who heads up mom on a shoestring, and her heart is with teaching children. And she asks, what are the best t- best dishes to teach your kids? And in reading this, I, I think this is going to be a wonderful resource for the home chef as well as professional chefs. How can someone use this book in terms of sharing it with a younger generation as well? I, well, I think that's a great question. I, we talked to Bill Telepan, who is the executive chef mm-hmm. of uh, wellness in the schools, and he talked about how important it is because he goes into his daughter's school and uh, wants to create dishes that are more healthful than what had already been in place, and yet you want to um, prepare dishes that kids are actually going to eat and not just turn around and throw away. 
so um, it's so important to go with what kids like. And you might want you might think, well, pizza it's it can be a fast food. I think if you're lo- using low quality dough or low quality cheese, um, but if you're using all quality products and maybe a, a, a whole wheat dough and some healthful vegetables on top, you, you know, you can, you can serve kids a healthful pizza. So go with whatever it is they like. Apparently um, his daughter loves rice and beans. And so he did this wonderful um, example of, you know, different aspects of rice and beans and combinations of things. I think they tried to serve chili, um, was it Ohio style, Cincinnati, Cincinnati style, style. Over, over spaghetti. They weren't going for it in New York City, <laughs> but um, they found that uh, the kids really loved elbow macaroni. And so instead of with a heavy cheese sauce, they would serve that with a bean-based chili, which was very healthful, um, great legumes, protein from legumes, um, vegetables in the sauce, and um, they were able to sell it, quote-unquote, to the kids with elbow macaroni. So if you work with ingredients that kids love to begin with, whether it's a format like macaroni and sauce, uh, or it's a burger, you can make it a veggie burger. If kids just like love eating burgers, they're going to be more open to trying ones. Um, and some of those veggie burgers mm-hmm. in this era of, um, you know, just outstanding uh, legume and uh, oats and uh, different uh, grains that are being used. Um, they're very compelling texture-wise and flavor-wise. And kids are going to be open to that. If you've got enough of their favorite toppings on it, ketchup, mustard, pickle, whatever it is they like on a on a whole wheat bun, um, they're going to enjoy it in that particular format where they might, might not be as open to something like a casserole or something if they don't have a point of reference for it. And I think something else kind of fun to use is uh, we have a sidebar on using colors in your food. We have the emotional connotations of colors. And if you use something like yellow, that make, that's a happy color. If you use something orange, that's a friendly color. So um, you can play with, you know, with the colors of your food. If you're going to add another ingredient, you, know, you could add maybe a little bit of um, Parmesan cheese at the last second. And that's like a nice, simple, pure, clean color. So you can play with a lot of different things. It's not just the recipe. And I thought it was also interesting that Bill said kids actually have a more adventurous palate than parents sometimes give them credit for. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he talked about, you know, if you have a good dressing, they're more, much more inclined to eat a salad. If there's like a, a ranch dressing, yeah, which they love. Exactly. No, 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 and that's white, so it's happy. <laughs> <laughs> and it's delicious, and it's simple, and it's clean. But I think it's a great point, Karen. Like, ranch dressing makes almost everything taste better. Right. Oh, this, this is just so great. Um, uh, Jennifer from Toronto asks, what are the must-haves for winter on-hand staple? Well, I think it's as true for adults as it is for kids. It, you know, my set of staples might be a little different from somebody else's set of staples. So you've got a, a regional pantry, um, you've got a seasonal pantry, and um, I, I think you can skin the list. For example, it, there are lists for winter, autumn, spring, and summer ingredients in Kitchen Creativity and very extensive seasonality charts. So you could start by skimming those ingredients and see what makes your mouth water. And we, we talk about the inner senses developing your inner senses and how important that is to be a good cook. And what we mean by that are things like instinct and intuition and insight and imagination and inspiration. And so instinct is wonderful because it's the most rooted in the physical body. And so literally some things when you read a menu, it's like, wow, my my mouth is watering. Or I just read about this dish description, I got goosebumps. Um, Those are physical manifestations of some excitement 
um, of some desire. And I think you want to follow that. So um, beets are very plentiful in the winter, which is why you see them on so many menus, but some people might not have a preference for beets. So they um, might have a preference for broccoli or some other cruciferous vegetables. And those might be part of the staples. But the great thing about broccoli is that you can take it to so many different countries. You can do a dish that is Italian in nature. You can do a dish that's Asian in nature. Um, you could go to India with with broccoli. So it's, it's very versatile that way, as opposed to beets, which every time you see them, <laughs> it tends to be with a, a white cheese and with a nut element and maybe some salad greens. Um, so Again, it depends on what your own personal preferences are. But I, I think what's nice is that it's a great um, time to go for root vegetables that um, we hadn't seen so much in the summertime when people are serving more salads. It's a great time for citrus. Um, and if you do like the whole sweet potato and yam family, it's a great time for that too. But I think if you can find a few key ingredients that you like, you can use kitchen creativity to come up with different ways of serving them. And we've also got lists of winter beers, winter cheeses, winter cocktails. Um, winter concepts, desserts, dressings, flavor affinities, wines, pastas, you name it. And so it gets you started once you know what season you're cooking for into all the ways that you have available to you to be creative. Oh, this is great. And then another question came in from an L.A. listener saying, what is your favorite casserole to bring to or share at potluck dinner parties? And are you invited to potluck dinner parties? (laughs) What do you bring? (laughs) Well, we're invited to holiday parties, you know. Yes. Um, Actually, one of my favorite things is actually not a casserole, but couscous. Ah, because uh, couscous, it, it cooks in five minutes, <laughs> literally. And you can really change it in so many different ways. There's so many different vegetables that work. I mean, Karen mentioned broccoli. Um, there's a lot of different things. You can make it vegetarian. You can make it vegan. Uh, you can make it for uh, the meat lover. And so it's very easy to make sort of like one batch of couscous and maybe do a couple of different versions. And it also holds really well, too. You, know, you can just put it in a low oven for 250 or something. And that's a nice way to do it. So that's one of my very favorites. And again, you can take advantage of what's in season. So you could, that would actually be a good dish for summertime too. Well, LA right now, I think last week it was 95. Yes. Um, you could do a cold couscous <laughs> and bring that to a, a party. And once it finally gets cold, a nice hot couscous, but very, very easy. And it doesn't require a lot of technique, but it gives you pure freedom from the farmer's market to make it your own. I love this. And I think it's so appropriate for for ending our kitchen chat. Usually I get the three top tips for the home chefs, but you have written a whole book. (laughs) 450 pages of them, (laughs) just for your listeners. Absolutely. Um, And and all of these tips, we can, can just have great takeaways. But I think the greatest tip is one of the quotes you begin with, and it's especially meaningful since uh, this past year we both we all sat together at the James Beard Awards here in yeah. Chicago mm-hmm. that was, how serendipitous was that oh. that was so much and, fun and boy did we look all good didn't we <laughs> 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 <was a> fabulous role <laughs> oh, yes and I'll make sure we post a picture listeners on kitchenchat.info but I love this first quote you begin with and it's by James Beard which is Food is our common ground, a universal experience. Mm, isn't that the truth? Uh, you know, and people ask why we um, have been able to enjoy writing about 
food for so long and after book 11, it's like, doesn't it get old? It does not get old because there are so many different aspects of food and we are both so blessed at Kitchen Creativity. When you write about creativity, it opens every single door for you to write about any aspect of food. And we've tried to bring so many of them into this book because each one of them can be a gateway to the topic of creativity. And you never know what is going to connect a particular reader. And I think for James Beard, it was... It, it's so true. It, it is our common ground. Each of us needs to eat every single day, uh, most of us three times a day. It is universal that the table is what brings all of us together. And so we're just hoping, again, as idealists who want you to not just have a dish, but a delicious dish, and not just a delicious dish, but a delicious dish with the perfect drink pairing that will enhance its deliciousness. And what we're doing with Kitchen Creativity is really, I think we've created the prequel for the flavor. Bible in that this is a book that will set up your creativity. We've aimed, and I think our readers will let us know if we succeeded, but we've aimed to create the ultimate culinary brainstorming tool so that no matter what it is you want to create, whether it's a new dish, a new dessert, a new drink, something else, that this will get your ideas churning. And this will get you thinking in ways that you had never thought about before. And um, there's 450 pages, as you said, of those that that kind of inspiration from every single angle to get people going. And we're thrilled and really honored and humbled to have had the chance to interview some of the world's best, most creative chefs about exactly how to do that. Yes. And thank you both, Karen and Andrew, for sharing Kitchen Creativity on Kitchen Chat. The pleasure is all ours anytime. Thank you. Oh, thank you. And thank you, dear foodie friends, for tuning in. Make sure you check out Kitchen Creativity. I'll have a link on my Facebook page, Kitchen Chat, as well as in my kitchen, kitchenchat.info. Thank you for joining me on this journey. And always remember to take a moment and savor the day. Thanks for joining Margaret for Kitchen Chat today. Margaret would be so excited for you to drop by and visit with her at kitchenchat.info, where you'll enjoy podcasts, blogs, recipes, tips from chefs, and even great giveaways. She invites you to share your recipes and kitchen stories, too. As Margaret always says, savor the day.